Pope Francis makes history by appointing three women to the Vatican office that chooses bishops and calls for zero tolerance for sexual abusers. Editor of the Catholic World News, Phil Lawler, is here with reaction. President Joe Biden signs an executive order seeking to protect the right to abortion. Can Roe v. Wade be codified into law after being overturned by the Supreme Court? Notre Dame professor at law Carter Sneed weighs in. Businessman and former Swiss guard Andreas Widmer talks about creating lasting value in his new book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship. The World Over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover and an announcement. Stay there. Pope Francis once again ruminates on the idea of retirement this week while seeming to criticize his immediate predecessor. Here with in-depth analysis is the editor of Catholic World News, visiting professor at Thomas More College, Philip Lawler. Phil, thanks for being here. I want to begin with the Pope's most recent interview. Uh, he seems to be doing multiples every week. Uh, we've asked the Holy See, by the way, for an interview. I'm awaiting a response. This week, he sat down with Univision, claiming he has no plans to retire, but then went on to say that should he retire, he would, quote, surely not stay in the Vatican or return to Argentina either, because, quote, I am the Bishop of Rome. I would be the Bishop Emeritus of Rome. The reporter says, at the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran? And the Pope responds, that could be to hear confessions at a church. Phil, what do you make of this answer, that he would not stay at the Vatican, given that Benedict made a decision to stay there? Well, I have to, Raymond, I have to say, I think you're inaccurate saying this is his most latest interview. I think there was another one that just came out today. Uh, it, you, oh. you can't tell without a scorecard. But, but to I answer stand question, corrected. <laughs> and you would probably be again tomorrow. Who knows? But uh, to answer your question directly, it's an odd statement. And I have to say the Pope was probably being prompted by the interviewer. But it's you can't talk about a retired pope without acknowledging the fact that we have a retired pope. So it does look like criticism of Pope Emeritus Benedict, who has stayed in the Vatican, when Pope Francis says he wouldn't stay in the Vatican. But then there's a sort of double whammy there, because he exceeds, he accepts the suggestion that maybe he would go live at the Basilica of St. John Lateran. Well, that is the official church of the Bishop of Rome. And if right. he is living in retirement, he's no longer the Bishop of Rome. He's the former Bishop of Rome. And therefore, it's confusing. He says it's confusing yeah. to have someone at the Vatican that seems to be a veiled criticism of Pope Benedict. Uh, I say yeah. it would be confusing yeah. to have him at St. John Lateran. Yeah, well, just and, and just for the record, as you indicated there, uh, St. John Lateran, it's Vatican territory. So it doesn't matter whether you stay in the garden or you're out at St. John Lateran, you're still at the Vatican. Uh, he had this to say about having a Pope Emeritus on the grounds at 
the Vatican City State. The first experience went quite well because he's a holy and discreet man, the Pope says, and he knew how to do it well. But for the future, things should be delineated more or things should be made more explicit. How do you interpret that, Phil? It's a funny thing. And again, it's hard not to see it as at least a subtle criticism of Pope Benedict. He's suggesting he, mm. he Benedict, handled it well. Uh, what, he is, what has he done? He's been almost completely silent since his, re since his retirement. He's been very scrupulous about never getting involved in any current controversies in the church. So that's handling it well. Um, to be honest with you, to be candid, I can't imagine Pope Francis in retirement being quiet about other controversies. In that respect, I do understand what he's saying. He might confuse people as a former pope. In fact, he probably would because he's confusing people now as the current pope. During the interview, Pope Francis was asked about the defense of abortion by President Biden. Uh, Francis stated that he leaves it to Biden's conscience, adding, let him talk to his pastor about that incoherence. Your reaction to that? Uh, Phil, there seems to be a lot of incoherence coming from the church these days. Just what I was going to say, the, the incoherence in that statement, because he also said that it's a problem when the pastor becomes political. Now, we all know what he means by that, although he doesn't say it outright. He means a criticism of Archbishop Salvatore Corleone of San Francisco, who has told Speaker Pelosi that she cannot receive communion in that archdiocese. And mm -hmm. the Pope yeah. is suggesting that that uh, he became political in saying that, and therefore he wasn't pastoral. Well, to my mind, right. he right. was making the ultimate pastoral statement. He was telling a member his, of his flock, your soul is in jeopardy. You have to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. That's pastoral. That's not political. And yeah, it, by the way, it's a curious there's, formulation. There's no there's no shortage of political statements coming out of the Vatican these days, by the way. Hmm. On Wednesday, Pope Francis named three women to the dicastery of bishops. Now, this is the office responsible for evaluating and suggesting new bishops to the Pope. Two are religious sisters, as well as Maria Lia Zervino. Now, she is a member of the Association of Consecrated Virgins, who is also a consultant to the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. Phil, what's the Pope trying to accomplish here? And where are the lay men? Good question. We're getting lay women, not lay men, because women want a role in choosing bishops. Well, women and lay women and lay men now have a role in choosing bishops insofar as we can make our voices heard. We can send suggestions to Rome. I've done that. I know at least one time, actually, my suggestion had some impact. Uh, but particularly to put them on a congregation which was previously made up only of bishops, the idea being that you need the successors of the apostles to choose the successors of the apostles. So putting women in there, well, it gives women a say. Uh, on the other hand, does it raise unrealistic expectations of what doors might be open to bishops, uh, I'm sorry, to women next? Well, you, you raise an interesting point. A, a statement following the announcement uh, was issued by the Women's Ordination Conference. 
uh, they said they welcomed Francis's move, but they cautioned that appointing more women to the Vatican Post, quote, cannot alone address the injustices women face in the church. Citing a culture, of a culture of clericalism and sexism, we also note the deep irony that women may now aid in selecting bishops, a role they themselves are prohibited from holding on account of their gender, end quote. Now, the uh, Women's Ordination Council, of course, advocates for ordaining women as deacons, priests, and bishops. What do you make of the timing of that statement, particularly as we find ourselves uh, moving into this synod on synodality, Phil? The timing of the statement was predictable uh, because the folks at the Women's Ordination Conference are never going to be satisfied with what the Vatican does, short of ordaining women to the priesthood, which Pope John Paul II has already told us is impossible. So uh, whenever the Vatican takes a, or anyone else in church leadership takes a step to give women a greater role, the people who want ordination of women are very predictably going to come out and say that's not enough. And that's one reason why I say it concerns me that this sort of thing, uh, this sort of appointment, which looks like tokenism, is going to excite expectations which the church can never meet. Hmm. Phil, the, the Pope met with the leaders of three religious congregations on July 14th. He urged them to take a, quote, zero-tolerance approach to sexual abuse. He put it this way, one of the problems we know that often exists is the problem of abuse. Please remember this well, zero-tolerance of abuse of minors or disabled people, zero-tolerance. I accompany you, you are a sinner, you are a sick person, but I have to protect others. Now, Phil, uh, this seems at odds with the way the Pope personally handled the case of, take for instance, convicted abuser Gustavo Zanchetta. Bishop Zanchetta uh, was found guilty in an Argentinian court. He's now apparently going to live out his days at a monastery under some kind of house arrest. You'll remember the Pope rejected the accusations against Zanchetta initially, going so far as to create a job for him at the Vatican. Um, columnist Marco Tosati writes this week that the same officials who convicted Zanchetta have granted him house arrest, and uh, he's being sheltered, as I mentioned, in a monastery. Your reaction to all of this? Well, you're right. This There is, again, an inconsistency here, because, unfortunately, Bishop Zanchetta is not the only example, although he might be the most egregious one, uh, examples of Pope Francis protecting bishops who are allies of his, giving them the benefit of the doubt, probably long after they deserve the benefit of the doubt, uh, and causing greater scandal thereby. And so you ask yourself, is there a zero-tolerance policy across the board, or is there some special policy for friends of the Pope? Because if it's the latter, then that sort of inconsistency will, of course, inflame passions, uh, and rightly so, among people who say we should have zero-tolerance across the board. Yeah, well, if we're going to have zero tolerance, I think we should have zero tolerance for any abusers, not just abusers of minors and, and disabled people. I mean, what, what about uh, teenagers? What about, uh, gro you know, grown seminarians who are abused? I mean, they're also under 
under the, the power of an individual, there should be zero tolerance across the board. I don't know why we're carving this out. But anyway, um, last week, the Pontifical Academy for Life issued a book entitled Theological Ethics of Life, Scripture, Tradition, Practical Challenges, where there were arguments made about the church's condemnation of artificial birth control and the application of those norms. Since then, the Academy has received a series of complaints and blowback on social media. Over the last few weeks, the Twitter account of the Pontifical Academy for Life has been responding to these complaints about the new document. In one instance, it warned that, quote, what is dissent today can change. And in another, it admonished someone that he or she should give credit to the dicasteries of the Curia and not to those who, for biased reasons, say no, end quote. Phil, what do you make of the Academy's response to criticism, particularly the warning that what is dissent today can change? I think, to use the expression, they're running it up the flagpole to see who will salute. There's a, a bid here to reopen the discussion of contraception, a discussion that happened in the wake of Vatican II or around the time of Vatican II with the Papal Commission on Birth Control. And that led, of course, to the encyclical by Pope Paul uh, VI, Humanae Vitae, very controversial, uh, in which he reaffirmed the traditional ban uh, on the use of artificial contraception. Well, it seems that now the Pontifical Academy of Life, of all places, wants to reopen that discussion. And that's why there's the suggestion what was dissent today can be something else tomorrow. Yeah. I say it's particularly ironic that it's coming from the Pontifical Academy for Life because that body was established by Pope John Paul II to promote the pro-life, uh, the culture of life, the culture that is uh, buttressed by the traditional teachings on human sexuality of the Catholic Church. And in the last couple of years, it has been gutted and it has become a voice for a vision very, very far removed from that of the Polish Pope. Sad. Uh, lastly, in a letter to participants at the EU Youth Conference in Prague this week, Pope Francis asked young people to eat less meat in a bid to take care of the environment. He wrote, quote, it is urgent to reduce consumption, not only of fossil fuels, but also of many superfluous things. And also in certain areas of the world, it is convenient to consume less meat. This can also help save the environment. What do you think uh, when you heard this culinary and climate advice from the Holy Father? I couldn't help but notice in the same conversation, he suggested encouraging regenerative agriculture, agriculture that's easier on the environment, you know, uh, ecological agriculture. And, you know, this week we've seen the future of that movement in Sri Lanka, where the government has just been overthrown because they're in crisis, because they can't get enough food. The Pope is not an expert on agriculture, and I think certainly our first priority is to grow enough food so that there are no people hungry. After that, mm. once that goal is met, then let's talk about uh, environmentally friendly agriculture. But the first, the first goal has to be to feed everyone. And when he talks about eating less meat, you know, there are an awful lot of people in parts of the world who don't get enough meat, who need meat. It's just an odd thing for them to hear the Pope suggesting you should eat less of it.
Mm. Phil Aller, we will leave it there. Thank you for your insight. Uh, as always, you can find Philip's reporting, commentary at catholicculture.org. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. You might call this Christmas in July. I'm very excited to announce my forthcoming Christmas book for the whole family. It's called The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. It's a sequel to The Spider Who Saved Christmas. This time out, the illustrations are by Diane LaFayre, and they are absolutely magnificent. The story reveals the true historic magi, as you've never seen them before. We won't be releasing the cover for a few weeks, but here's a teaser of The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. The Wise Men Who Found Christmas can be pre-ordered now from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and soon the EWTN catalog. This was not a decision driven by the Constitution. And despite what those justices of the majority said, this was not a decision <clears throat> driven by history. We need two additional pro-choice senators and a pro-choice House to codify Roe as federal law. And the fastest way to restore Roe is to pass a national law codifying Roe which I will sign immediately upon its passage at my desk. That was President Joe Biden last Friday prior to signing an executive order attempting to expand abortion access. What can the administration really do? And can Roe be codified into law, as Biden and others are suggesting? Joining me now to discuss this and more, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame and author of the book, What It Means to Be Human, the Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, Carter Sneed. Carter, thanks for being here. I want to start with what President Biden said there. The fastest way to restore abortion is to codify Roe v. Wade, even which, with the votes, which currently the Senate does not have. Uh, Biden mentioned the Congress can pass a national law codifying Roe v. Wade after the decision by the Supreme Court. Would that withstand judicial review, Carter? Can you codify something into federal law once the Supreme Court has said there's no constitutional right to this? Well, the court basically said that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion, and therefore the matter of abortion should be sent to the political branches. Uh, Congress is, in principle at least, uh, a body of limited powers. The powers are limited to those powers that are enumerated specifically in the Constitution. So the question would be, under what authority would Congress have the power to regulate the practice of medicine in every state in the country? And I suppose they would invoke the Commerce Clause for that proposition. They would argue that the provision and sale of abortions affects interstate commerce. Uh, and I could imagine that being challenged, and that would be a, present a very serious and interesting legal question that the court has never addressed in the context of abortion. Mm. Um, but one mm. of the things that I think is telling about uh, President Biden's remarks is, what would it even mean to codify Roe? There's a lot of disagreement about what Roe actually stands for. And the last time they tried to wow. codify Roe, they uh, they couldn't even get all of the votes in their own caucus. 
uh, Senator Manchin voted no. Uh, Susan Collins, pro-choice Republican, voted no. Because what they mean when they say codify Roe is, is not something modest. It's something that, that basically makes abortion legal on demand to viability. That's 22 to 24 weeks. And then basically available and accessible thereafter up until the point of birth, which is why um, moderate pro-choice folks, including on the Republican side, couldn't support what, what they mean when they say they're to codify Roe v. Wade. Hmm. What do you make of Biden's charge that the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe was not driven by the Constitution? I mean, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and, and Lawrence Tribe and others have said the, 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 the reasoning in Roe was constitutionally brittle, to say the least. Yeah, to say the least. I mean, Roe v. Wade is one of the most badly, egregiously and grievously badly reasoned opinions in, in modern history. Uh, you don't hear anyone defending Roe v. Wade's arguments on the merits. You hear people talk about stare decisis. You hear people talk about the, mm -hmm. the policy consequences of states being allowed to govern themselves on Roe. But even in the dissent in Dobbs, you didn't really get a, a defense of Roe v. Wade on its own terms. Scholars mm -hmm. that support abortion don't cite Roe v. Wade's arguments. They make their own arguments up based on other provisions of the Constitution. So Roe is, is one of the most lawless decisions ever because it is completely untethered to the text, history, and tradition of the Constitution. There's no serious argument or, or defensible argument that there is a right to abortion in the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, when abortion was illegal in three-fourths of the states. When abortion was illegal in 30 of 50 states from conception, the day Roe was decided, and he had 26 states file amicus briefs in Dobbs calling for Roe to be overturned. There's no relationship between abortion and the Constitution, and, the, and, and President Biden's suggestion is almost exactly the opposite of the truth. Hmm. Biden's executive order on abortion, Carter, is vague at best. It's designed to ensure access to medical abortions. Uh, while meeting with reporters, he announced the executive order. And the, the question is, from a legal perspective, is there uh, anything on a federal level this administration or any future administration can do to make abortion legal across the country as it was before Dobbs? There's nothing, no, there's nothing, there's no executive action the, 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 the president of the United States or his administrative agencies could take to override the state laws on abortion uh, across the country in those, in those states that are going to severely and significantly restrict abortion and defend unborn human lives. What he's doing is, I think, twofold. There's an optical dimension of what he's doing. He, he needs to do something to shore up his reputation with his base mm. uh, and to shore up his reputation with the ardent pro-abortion rights activists who make up his base, who think that he's not doing enough. So there's a kind of performative dimension to this, what he's doing with this, uh, 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 this e executive order and the actions of the administrative agencies. And then the agencies themselves are trying to use their authority under the statutes that they're that they're meant to implement to try to promote abortion access but but their authority is limited by the statutes that they are trying to implement, right? So there's no federal statute that gives HHS the authority to promote abortion. To the contrary, we have laws that forbid federal involvement in abortion, the spending federal funds on abortion through the Hyde Amendment and related related laws right. like that. What you're happening and you and it, on the question of what you called medical abortions, abortion drugs, chemical abortions, right. the idea of people ordering drugs in the mail and having them delivered and self-administering those drugs. Well, um, states are, I think, within their authority to say you may not use these drugs 
in our borders. They may very well be within their authority to say you can't send them into our borders. There's actually a federal law mm-hmm. called the Comstock Act, which makes it a, cr- a federal yeah. crime to send abortion drugs through the mail. It's not been enforced recently, mm-hmm. so far as I can tell, but it's part of a larger apparatus that was amended as recently as the mid-1990s. And so mm-hmm. uh, you have the FDA claiming things like, well, uh, we've judged the, uh, the the first of the two abortion pills and the abortion in the RU-46 two-pill cocktail for abortion drugs. Right. We think that that's safe and efficacious for abortion. Well, that's the, and, and therefore states are preempted from disagreeing with that proposition. But when a state bans an abortion pill, it's not saying that it's not safe or effective to perform an abortion for a woman. It's saying it's an instrument of, of unjust and unlawful killing, and we don't want it within our borders. Imagine there was a drug uh, approved just strictly for uh, assisted suicide. It wouldn't mean that it would override the lo- state laws of those states uh, that have banned assisted suicide, that because the FDA says a drug is safe and effective for assisted suicide, although that's a funny kind of idea when you're talking about suicide, um, that that would somehow override the state's authority. So I'm very skeptical that uh, this will have any real bite. It will cause confusion. There'll be litigation, and eventually it'll have to be settled yeah. by the courts. Uh, but um, but I, I'm not I'm not I'm skeptical that uh, that anything meaningful will happen. Yeah, when Dobbs came down, I thought we're going to be stuck in courts uh, about this decision and the ramifications for decades. This is not going to end anytime soon. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and 23 fellow Democrats uh, have suggested using federal lands, Carter, in states that have abortion bans to set up abortion facilities, federal abortion facilities. There are also notions of setting up abortion ships. Now, according to a forthcoming paper, In the Columbia Law Review, the authors argue that this idea could work because, quote, in theory, state abortion bans would not apply to those federal enclaves, so it would essentially be an island of federal jurisdiction in a state that otherwise bans abortion. Now, the Biden administration has said they're not currently looking at these ideas, although when asked, the Health and Human Services Secretary said every option's on the table. But wouldn't these individuals involved in this sort of um, federal island, they'd still have to cross into the state, right, and would be subject to the state laws coming and going? So, so there, there are two things I would, I would notice. Well, three things. One is we need to remind ourselves who the Secretary of Health and Human Services is. He is a an ardent abortion rights proponent from California. He was he was he was in in his role, in his, as a state official in California, persecuted pro life pregnancy centers. He promoted abortion. Uh, that was really what he was most known for. He doesn't have any special expertise in health policy or health care, and he was chosen because he's an abortion rights zealot. And that's what you hear when you hear those comments from him. Secondly. As a political matter, it's hard for me to imagine it being a winning issue for the Biden administration to set up abortion clinics in Yellowstone Park or to set up abortion tents, uh, you know, in other national parks or on other federal lands. I think that one thing that's mm-hmm. coming to the surface in this in this conversation is how completely uh, uh, in a bubble abortion rights advocates are. They don't even understand how they sound when they say things like, we need to start abortion clinics in national parks, for example. Um, but the third point is a more complicated technical legal point. There, It is a very complex question as to what effect state criminal law has on federal property within those states. There's a statute called the Assimilative mm-hmm. Crimes Act. And in order to figure out how that works and what that that dynamic looks like, uh, you would have to do a lot of of thinking and reasoning. And I think it's, in most instances, 
state criminal law does in fact apply on on federal mm -hmm. property um and and yeah. for for the reasons that you in some ways that you alluded to and so mm -hmm. uh there was an uh, uh, there was a mention in in, in uh, attorney general garland's press release after dobbs that they have an office of legal counsel opinion uh, which is the body that advises the attorney general on constitutional matters right. about uh, about the assimilative crimes act and the uh, effect of state criminal law on federal properties um but they've not made it public and uh, and I'm not I don't know anyone who's seen the text of this opinion, and so that should tell you how confident they are in their judgment. Yeah, well, uh, I yeah, that's a that's an odd suggestion to turn federal you know national parks and and I I presume museums you know you could have abortions in the Smithsonian, but that's a very odd uh, uh, addenda to their their mission. Uh, I want to move on to the attacks we've been seeing on crisis pregnancy centers throughout the country in the past month. Uh, this is what Senator Elizabeth Warren had to say about these crisis pregnancy centers to a reporter. Listen. In Massachusetts right now, those crisis pregnancy centers that are there to fool people who are looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber true abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down here in Massachusetts and we need to shut them down all around the country. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that. Carter, your reaction? I mean, the word torture is extraordinary to use in this context. I mean, the idea uh, to, to use that, it's, it's such an ironic use of the term when we're talking about this subject. Um, but put that to the side. It, it, it doesn't seem very pro-choice to me to want to shut down clinics that women go to to seek life-affirming care, to only make available to them those clinics that we know promote abortion and provide abortion, that don't support the woman mm. uh, after she's after she gives birth and, and, and provide parenting classes and other material support and family support, mentoring, substance abuse services, the way these mm -hmm. pro-life crisis pregnancy centers do. Um, it's an it's an amazing thing. What is she so afraid of? What, why is she afraid of of good people offering life-giving care to mothers and babies and families as opposed to simply giving them an abortion? You, you hear frequently people say, you know, being pro-choice is not being pro-abortion. But if you want to sweep away all legal restrictions on abortion and take away all non-abortion alternatives for women, it's hard to, I think, assert with a straight face that you're not, in fact, promoting abortion. Uh, Carter, according to a list compiled by the Family Research Council, uh, since the Dobbs leak on May 2nd, there have been over 50 attacks of vandalism and arson on pro-life organizations around the country. 35 of these attacks have been against the crisis pregnancy centers you're just talking about. Not a word from the administration condemning these attacks. Where is the Justice Department? And how should these cases be handled on a federal level? Well, it's an extraordinary question, extraordinary situation. I mean, we, we have seen a spate of violence and, and criminality, including uh, a planned assassination of a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Um, and mm -hmm. so far as I can tell, the reaction on the part of the federal government has been nothing like that uh, in terms of its rhetoric and its, and its announced behaviors vis-a-vis -vis protecting abortion clinics. There is the Free Access to Clinic Entrances Act, uh, which, right. which empowers the federal government to protect um, a variety of kinds of institutions around the country. And at the very least, you would hope that the Attorney General of the United States, or the President even, would, would express concern about this violence and vandalism and targeting of, 
of these uh, these good people who are trying to take care of mothers and babies and families. But as you say, uh, as far as I can tell, unless I've missed it, there's not been any concern expressed. There's not been any uh, any, yeah. any mention of it. And, I, and I, let me just say one more thing in this spirit. The, the reaction of the Biden administration to the Dobbs case has simply been about promoting abortion. Not one word thus far as I, uh, that I've heard about providing services and care for mothers and babies and families who have children, who, who, mm. who carry their pregnancies to term, who live in these jurisdictions that, they, that, the, that the president and others lament will now be abortion deserts. They won't have abortion anymore. Well, shouldn't you then pivot and, and go into those jurisdictions and partner with these pregnancy centers and partner with those people who are trying to give services? Uh, at the very least, you should protect them from criminal violence. Yeah, well, and the FACE Act, I mean, you, you mentioned that, that 94 FACE Act, that covers entrance to clinics. Well, it, it would seem these crisis pregnancy centers, they, uh, they, they counsel people, they refer women to, to uh, other facilities. Those are uh, the linchpins of that statute. So shouldn't they be protected under that? Yeah, I mean, I would have to take a look at the statute and the regulations, but if it's as you say, I, absolutely they should. Yeah. In addition to crisis pregnancy centers, over 30 churches have been vandalized or burned in recent weeks. Three were targeted in Maryland this past weekend. The pastor of uh, St. Jane de Chantal Parish, Father Samuel Guise, had this to say to his congregation on Sunday. Last night, our church was vandalized. People broke in. They overturned statues, they tore down the stations of the cross, they desecrated the tabernacle, and tried to set the church on fire. I believe that this is because of the church's stand on the issue of life when it begins and that it should be protected and that this is one of the manifestations of the deep divisions right now within our country. That there are those who believe that we do not have even the right to practice our faith. Uh, Carter, in New Orleans last week, another parish was struck by vandals. They came in the night, tackled a pro-life shrine, then made off with the statue of the Virgin Mary. They returned days later to steal another statue and topple two others. Again, we've heard not a word from the Biden administration condemning these attacks. In your opinion, uh, will this continue? And do these attacks violate the free exercise of religion? Are they hate crimes? Well, I would certainly, I do certainly worry that they will continue. It feels to me like things are ratcheting up and not ratcheting back in terms of the violence and the anger. Uh, and it, it, the the federal government and the Department of Justice certainly has tools at its disposal to investigate and to prosecute hate crimes, crimes based on religious affiliation. I mean, we've seen in the past hateful acts taken against synagogues and mosques and and uh, historically African-American congregations and the, and the federal government has correctly intervened, investigated, supported local law enforcement efforts in that respect. And it seems to me that this is an instance in which uh, an, an, an intervention is required uh, if they have yeah. the authority to do that under federal law. And it seems to me that, 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 they, that they must. So in any event, I think uh, I, feel, I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. This is a systematic targeting for vandalism and violence 
of people based on their uh, their religious beliefs, their religious practices, and their ethical mm-hmm. beliefs uh, that arise from uh, their belief and how they, uh, what obligations they have to their to their neighbor and to one another. Yeah. Well, Carter, look, if they if the the Justice Department looked the other way, when Supreme Court justices were having, in fact, colleagues of yours were having their houses of worship, their children's schools published and and targeted for violence, when that just receives a sort of blasé uh, reaction, of course, these church attacks, they just brush them away and ignore them. But it's a big problem, and it's a nationwide one that does need addressing. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I would hope that this could be a moment at which Merrick Garland, uh, who is, uh, you know, by reputation a serious person, could show some leadership and could look beyond partisan politics and to show that he actually is an independent-minded person and to take action necessary to try to respond to all of these acts of criminality and, and violence that we've been discussing. Mm. It is a, a shocking thing when you can't trust the Attorney General of the United States to enforce the law in an even-handed way based on ideology. Carter Sneed, we will leave it there. What it means to be human, the case for the body in modern bioethics by Carter Sneed's available in bookstores everywhere. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Is it possible to run a business and be both profitable and virtuous? This is a question often asked by managers and employees. How can a business make money and still be people-centered? For answers, we turn to the Director of Entrepreneurship at the Bush School of Business and Economics at Catholic University and author of the new book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship, Creating Enduring Value. Please welcome back to the program, Andreas Widmer. Andreas, thanks for being here. Uh, Before we get to the book, I need to start with your time serving in the Pontifical Swiss Guard under Pope John Paul II. Uh, You you were a Swiss Guard between 1986 and 88. How did that service shape the way you look at business and entrepreneurship today? Thanks for having me, Raymond. It's always a pleasure to be here. And thanks for giving me this opportunity. What what changed in my life during those two years is that I entered the Guards not exactly as a non-believer, but as a, as a sort of more cultural Catholic. And of course, that all changed when I met John Paul II. And he showed me a view of the world, an understanding of the world, an anthropology of humanity, as he would call it, that yeah. once you ring that bell, you can't see the world in another way. And that has had a huge impact on my life. And that's actually ever since uh, what I do and what I now try to write about. You often speak of the gospel of work. In fact, you teach an online course on the subject where you explore the meaning of work and how it contributes to the human fulfillment and success. What do you mean by work as gospel? And and how should faith inform our work and the way we conduct business? I mean work as gospel in a sort of play off um, what John Paul called the gospel of life. The gospel mm-hmm. principally just means the good news. And the good news is that we, when we work, we actually get to imitate God the creator because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So work itself is a way that we imitate God. And when you imitate somebody like that a lot, then you become more like them. And so work is a part of our, mm-hmm. our path to holiness. I want to move on to the new book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship. Uh, From where did this concept of principled entrepreneurship originate? And what inspired you to focus on that concept in the book? Yeah. 
So I have a friend uh, called Art Sioka, and he uh, was very much into a, a business strategy uh, or a business um, a theory called MBM, market-based management. Um, and in there is this principled entrepreneurship as a piece of it, which basically focuses on uh, the person-centered management of a company. And that is something that he talked to me a lot about and I became very interested yeah, in. Yeah. I sort of merged that with my view of the theology of the body with John Paul II. And, and uh, the result of it is this book. What, what is that person-centered entrepreneurship? Define that term. Look, I mean, everybody will say they're person-centered because they're worried about their, their clients or their, yeah. uh, the people they're serving, right? Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, the economy should exist for people, not people for the economy. And we have lost yeah. kind of the view, the, the center of this. It's okay to make money and all that, but we have to understand, again, going back to that principle, that when we create, we imitate God, that that itself yeah. is a fulfilling an important thing, and if we lose, uh, if we lose traction of that, if we put other things in the center of the economy, just pure profitability or financial speculation or so, then we lose track, we, we lose focus on the human person, and that leads to alienation. And mm. we're, we're seeing this every day. A, a recent research by Gallup has shown that two thirds of our workforce is disengaged. Those are people who can't mm. wait to get home in the evening. And yeah. I think that that is not a sign for them being bad or doing something wrong, but that is a sign of our culture of having lost the focus of what work is really all about. Mm. We hear a lot about entrepreneurship today, particularly when it comes to well-known entrepreneurs, uh, uh, Elon Musk or the, the founder of Amazon, Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Uh, in your book, you hold up a different model. You mentioned him a moment ago, Art uh, Choka. Uh, why is he a model that you hold up in the book? And tell us who, who Art is. Yeah, Art to, my, to me is sort of the CEO that nobody knows, but everybody should know, because what he was all about is to create a person-centered uh, company, not just on the basis of the employee, but also on the basis of the, folk, uh, of, of the customer. He basically put the customer and, and his employees or his teammates into the center of the equation of business. And then instead of mm -hmm. setting out to just create a product uh, or a company that does a certain thing, he actually tried to focus on creating a culture that is a company that then produces ongoing new products and new innovation and new ideas to create what he calls enduring value. All of that comes is the result of a culture in a company that produces this, not just an idea for one product or one service. Mm. No, I want to get into that idea of the culture of a, of a workplace, the culture of a business. Um, but in the first chapter of the book, Andreas, you address the market economy and capitalism as we know it, here in the United States at least. And you write, through a process of soul-searching study and analysis, I reconciled myself with the market economy. Although it has lots of room for improvement, primarily among its participants, I found it to be a system that best supports human flourishing and freedom. It's the system that, to me, represents the highest achievement of Western civilization, a system of personal freedom and responsibility that can bring about the common good. Now, how did you come to that conclusion over time? I looked at the economy and at the <clears throat> really at the, the core of it, which is freedom of, uh, of, of creation, freedom of coming together and choosing what we do, mm -hmm. and really using our strengths to add value for others. And then whoever does that best has an edge and goes up, and if somebody else comes and does it better, it causes progress and we move forward. All of that works 
you know, people, I, I don't like it when people say that the economy or business is like war. It's nothing like this. Believe me, I'm a soldier. I was mm -hmm. a soldier. And the mm -hmm. economy is nothing like the war. Business is nothing like war. Business is more like the Olympics, mm -hmm. where we compete with each other. Mm -hmm. And if you watch last year's Olympics, you see that people who may have not been first, they may have been second or, or tenth, and they're still happy to have competed because it was their personal best. They learn something. They compete better mm, when there's right. somebody running to, uh, next to them. And for us as a society, having an economy that is based on free access and competition, uh, where everybody mm. gets to participate, brings out the best in humanity. At the center of the book, you've defined five pillars of principled entrepreneurship that you insist nourish the American dream. I want to run through them and explore them quickly. Uh, the economy exists for people, not people for the economy. We've kind of hit that. Uh, number two, to work is to create. To create is to be human. Three, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Four, always seek to create win-win solutions. Five, always think like an entrepreneur. Uh, I want to go quickly to that second point. To work is to create. To create is to be human. Uh, why is creativity, innovation so crucial to entrepreneurship? It goes back to the idea of us as humans to fully flourish when we work. If you ever meet somebody who is out of work or you have, have, have the experience yourself, it is actually something that diminishes us, that makes us in a sense less human. For us to work and to compete like this and to create is to mm -hmm. be fully human. Uh, spiritually, of course, this is because we were created in the image and likeness of the Creator. And we are meant, uh, we are made to create. Um, this is a part of how we fully become uh, who we are meant to be. Yeah, I love the line, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Explain that to people. So I use this sentence, which is a, a, a well-known and much-used sentence. I, with many of these titles, I use things that people are sort of aware of, but I go over them and give them deeper meaning. Culture eating strategy for breakfast. What I mean with this is that uh, what I said earlier, that most people, when they start a company, not most, but many people who start a company, think that this is like the Eureka, Eureka moment where you come up with a business idea or a, or a product idea, and then you create that. Well, mm -hmm. the result of that is sort of a, a company that has, the, has one good thing, like a product or something, and then it stifles, then it, right. then it sort of lands again. Much more important mm. is to focus as an entrepreneur or as a manager or as a CEO, creating the culture of the company that then begets the innovation and the mm. progress and, and the competitiveness of the company. And so I would say more in the beginning, more than just a product, we should build and focus on creating a culture in our economy, in, in our businesses, that, that is to say, that is conducive to human flourishing. And the rest sort of comes like a cascade from that. Yeah, well, uh, unleashing creatives and sort of, you know, managing them at points, but unleashing that creative spirit, that ingenuity yeah. and guiding it, that really is what a business exists to do. Yeah. And all too often enterprises crumble on that one principle. Um, I love always seek to create win-win solutions or situations, rather. If only Catholic groups would get this right, Andreas, yeah. it could make an enormous difference. Sadly, you often see envy and pettiness, and it keeps everybody in this very small ghetto, and the message never gets out. How do you get around that? creating a win-win situation when people feel there's the only way for me to win is for you to lose. That is the greatest misunderstanding of the market economy. People think mm -hmm. that the economy is a zero-sum game and nothing could be further for the, from the truth. The economy exists by somebody saying, how may I help you? That's the core 
question of business. How may I help you? That includes everything we need. It includes me and you and how I can help. Now, if I do this right, I use my God-given talents to add value for you, which you then are willing to pay more for than I paid for it to make it. That new, that new value, we measure that with money, profit, that new value is new money, has never been there before. So to compare it to the idea of the economy being like a pizza, the economy is not like a pizza. The economy is like a pizza shop, like a pizzeria. We make yeah. pizza. Yeah. So this whole idea then, right. when you look at the economy as a zero-sum game, you come up immediately mm. with the idea, well, we need to redistribute wealth. No, no, no. What we need to do is to make more pizza, give more people access to enable their create creativity, to integrate them into networks of productivity and exchange so they mm. can be productive and fulfill themselves, and not only through the work that they're doing, but through the creativity and through the generation of new wealth. Uh, Andreas, I am not a huge fan of bureaucracy, as anybody who's watched this show over many years can tell you, though a certain amount is necessary, I understand. Yeah. How can bureaucracy get in the way of the principled entrepreneurship that you are making the argument for here? Doesn't it stifle creativity? Uh, you know, and, and is there a way to make it work in harmony with this entrepreneurial vision you put forward? Yeah. The first thing is to understand that idea that the economy is not a zero-sum game. That's very important, and, mm. and uh, bureaucracies or government need to understand that. Second is this concept, this was one of the uh, ideas I explain in the book, uh, about creative destruction. The way, think of a forest, the mm -hmm. way a forest grows is that the big old trees fall over eventually. First they dominate and they give shade to everything, things coming on, yeah. up underneath, and then eventually they fall and new growth comes up. That is creative mm -hmm. destruction, right? And, and the fall of it even has a benefit, it, it creates soil and, it, and new things come up with it. The economy is exactly the same way. We should not try to uphold large old trees that sort of you know, um, outlived their usefulness in a sense, but we should mm. always encourage competition. In the economy, we should do everything to increase and to, to, to ensure competition and nothing to decrease it. Because as long as we have this competition, the consumer, us, all of us, actually benefit because we get the faster, cheaper, uh, cheaper, better kind of solutions out of that kind of system. And that's also good for the, for the bureaucracy or the government because that there you're looking at tax systems and, and, and tax revenues and so on. So, right. so the bureaucracy sometimes gets in, in, in the way by trying to maintain the status quo. And in the economy, that, that is actually not the way to go. Yeah, or, or you know, in the creative arts, you, you often see these companies where the bureaucracy tries to pick winners and losers that the audience don't agree with. You know, so they're 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 fighting, counter-programming their own yeah. audience, and you see this in big studios, in small operations. It's an amazing thing to sort of witness. Um, what do I call it? Fail upward. People failing yeah. upward. You know, they get less and less ratings, less and less audience, yeah. but, but but people continue to push them. It's astounding. Um, yeah. And you know, as long as we're talking about Mother Angelica. And, or rather, we're talking about bureaucracy. I was thinking of Mother Angelica, who used to sh say she could not stand committees or bureaucracy. Yeah. She said, you know, a committee, most people, the Lord tells them to do something. They gather a committee. They do a feasibility study. They lay out a budget. And by that time, you've already forgotten what the Lord asked you to do. There is this idea that she, that she taps into there, that what we're meant to be, we are meant to be teams and work in teams. And, and you can mm -hmm. even have some rules for that, which you can compare to bureaucracy. But the teams and what our Mother Angelica did so well, she found people with different God-given talents and then let them do, yeah. like what you're doing, 
totally focus on what their talent is and then have other people make up for their non-talents. And if you have a team right. together where everybody gets to practice and, and fulfill their God-given talents, then the teams become larger than the sum of their parts. And that's where you get this economic miracle of great prosperity. I agree. Uh, you, you know, uh, Andreas, years ago, uh, a, a university in Miami contacted me after the Mother Angelica biography, uh, you know, had, had spread around the country. People had read it. And they were using it as a textbook in entrepreneurship yeah. um, and kind of inspired entrepreneurship. Yeah. It, Talk to me for a moment about that branch of study that sort of, you know, Mother Angelica never had budgets initially. You know, she, she sort of went with her gut and where the audience was going. Is that a is that illicit approach to a business in this day and age? It has always been and it will always be. I think Mother Angelica is, is if she, when, when she becomes a, when she's declared a saint, I want to make her the patron saint of the American dream. Because that is exactly what she <laughs> represents. That. that she comes yeah. from nowhere with, with, in an environment where you think she's not, she's not going to have any chances or amount to anything. And she overcomes all that by finding her God-given talent and finding a way to add value for others. None of this at EWTN would, would work if the value proposition of how may I help you wasn't figured out. Mm -hmm. She did. She helped them with the network yeah. and with the kind of news and information and, and, and programming that people loved. And she found the people mm -hmm. to deliver that value, um, value proposition yeah. um, that were just excellent. And it's, it's a, a case study in how to be innovative and how to, in my opinion, be a principal entrepreneur. Yeah, no, no, she, she identified that need in the audience and yeah. then she fulfilled it and, and, and expanded on it. And never well, lost, she never lost sight of the person of the human person this to her was of exactly. course about Jesus Christ and as, a, as a, right. a, through an extension of that through it was about each person who's watching this every day I, I remember seeing her on TV and she talks to the individual person it was about each individual yeah. person and it was also about each in each individual employee and and that is uh, what I mean by person-centeredness mm. before we run out of time inflation is at a 40-year high right now 9.1 percent currently, and you and I know that's probably much higher. The government uses a lot of voodoo to yeah. uh, come up with that number. Uh, this makes it awfully hard for folks who want to buy a home uh, and, and, and who dream of a business. And I often think of that old adage, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, Andreas, is there a silver lining in this harsh economic environment? I think there is. If you're looking at the latest numbers of entrepreneurship, over the last 40 years, we had a dramatic decline. I think we're at 40 percent of what we used to be in the 70s, literally. Mm -hmm. And this is even with all the tech boom and everything. We have 40 percent of the amount of entrepreneurs that we had uh, back in the 70s, except after COVID and now with this mass exit, they call it. Uh, you're starting to see numbers where we have in a few months as much uh, new startups as we had in years in a year before. And I think there is this silver lining that a lot of people are saying, OK, enough of this bureaucratic large company thing. Let me go out and actually pursue my uh, talent and my happiness and start my own company. And I encourage everybody out there to really to look at this book. And it's a, a step by step approach to mm -hmm. think about how can I do this? And, and to give you some ideas and some, some points of reflection uh, to go about this, to put this into reality. Mm. No, it's a fascinating read. Andreas, we'll leave it there. The book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship, Creating Enduring Value by Andreas Widmer, is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Raymond.
That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. I know.